Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most brutal, the most grotesque, and the most high-profile homicides occurring in Maryland, they are discussed and they are profiled. If you've been tuning in uh, for the season, you already know that the focus is on revenge. Now, season nine, vengeance is mine. That's what we're talking about. Vengeance is mine, said the Lord. That is a scripture in Romans 12, 19 through 21, or Deuteronomy 32, 35, depending on whatever Bible you're using. Uh, you could be using the King James Version or the New World Translation, which is what I grew up with. But anyway... <clears throat> And vengeance or revenge is the topic for this season. They say that revenge is a dish best served cold. And these next cases of revenge murders, they did not fail to deliver. Just that. These next cases of revenge homicides occurring in Maryland, they had a clear motive of revenge. Or basically, I'm going to pay you back for whatever I feel that you did to me. Um, we're on episode number eight. We only got two more left. Now, some people just cannot let, they can't let shit go. No matter what, it's in their nature. And they would rather just happily spend the rest of their lives in prison than just let things go and move on. And this episode's case of revenge homicide that I'm going to profile is the brutal and bold brazen mass shooting of five women inside an East Baltimore row home. And just like I've done in every single episode of this podcast, a portion of this podcast will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because it's now considered a cold case and not a lot or if anything is being done. In every single episode of this podcast, Although a lot of attention and focus is given to homicides that may have received a lot of press and attention and notoriety and stuff like that, on the flip side, this podcast also has a goal in assisting with any unsolved homicides that need to be solved, no matter how small they may seem to the public or whatever. They're still big to the family members. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the stabbing murder of Diane Lynn Miller. Drugs and money. Drugs and money. Drugs and money. They go hand in hand. When I say that they are the catalyst to damn near 90% of the murders and homicides occurring in Maryland, or especially particularly in Baltimore City, I'm not lying to y'all. Everybody want to get paid quick. And back before prescription pain pills took over and doctors... They and big time pharmaceutical companies became the new, they became the new legal drug dealers. In the late 1990s, crack cocaine and heroin still ruled and flooded the streets of Baltimore City like a freaking tsunami. And when you have drug dealing and selling, you best believe you're going to have drug related murders. That's just a fact. It's just a fact. they, They go hand in hand. It's just... Competing for whatever, you know, uh, territory, uh, stealing, using, and 
most drug-related killings, they don't get a lot of press or attention because they are so common in the state, especially in the city of Baltimore. And for me personally, as a fan, I'm not going to lie, as a fan of true crime, this is the only area that I'm not really, a, I won't say a fan of, I'm not really fascinated with the drug-related murders because to me, it's just, you know, you shoot somebody and it, that that wasn't the kind that really fascinated me or had me wanting to really research a lot on them because I'm not really into drugs like that. But um, it's it's like, I don't know, so those type of killings, they don't get a lot of oppressive attention because they so, they so common in this state, especially in the city of Baltimore. Plus, it's because, like, the motive seems pretty obvious to me, and it's, it's almost presumed that if you lead a lifestyle of, you know, slaying a yayo or selling drugs or whatever, then eventually you should know, this is 2024, that that's not going to end good for you. Eventually that will either lead to prison or lead to your demise. But one particular drug-related slash revenge murder, again, it helped solidify uh, the nickname that we have earned in Bodymore Murderland in a way in a way that received uh, national attention. I'm gonna try to keep up and get the basics the basic details right in this case because when I was doing the research it led me on a journey that took me like all over the place with like it's too many killings too many murders so much bloodshed that I could barely even keep up with it myself. Like, like I said, I'm not into the drug game. I don't know. I can't even dip into that mentality. You know, speaking of drugs, <laughs> look, why am I even saying this? But like, I briefly, briefly, back in the day, like 90s, I tried to sell crack cocaine way back in the day. I'm talking about my rent was due. You know, I heard you could flip your money, blah, blah, blah. And we seemed like everybody was doing it. I mean, it just did not go well for me. <laughs> it did not. I am not a crack seller. <laughs> Let me tell you, I admit, I I ain't know what I was doing. I basically ended up getting robbed, <laughs> to tell you the truth. I mean, the dude ended up, I tried to have somebody do it for me. He ended up selling half of it and then smoking half of it with somebody else. It was just a disaster <laughs> back when I tried selling it for like a day or two. To make, you know, I hang, I, I had a kid, I had to make, I had to make, you know, ends meet. So, it, it seemed like everybody was doing it. Selling it, or using it, or anything. I, I grew up in the projects back then. Um, was I think I was still in Lexington Tower, so back then I think I was on my own. I had moved to Uplands, in the village. But anyway, uh, it seemed like everybody was doing it. 27-year-old Ismael Malik Wilson, 22-year-old... Robert Lamont Bryant, 21-year-old Trayvon McCoy, and 19-year-old Tariq Malik, they all sold drugs on a regular. This was like, like I said, everybody was doing it. They all had the record or the rap sheet to prove their lifestyles, and to put it bluntly, they wanted money from other drug dealers. That was another common thing that was going on back in the day. As far as I know, it could still be going on now. But anyway, 39-year-old Mary Lowe McNeil Matthews, 
her mother, which her name was also Mary too, which makes the story even more confusing. Mary's mother, 56-year-old Mary Helen Collian, um, Mary's Matthew's daughter, uh, like the owner of the house's daughter, the 39-year-old, her daughter, was 18-year-old Makisha Jenkins, and two other family members who were related to the family as cousins by marriage were 23-year-old Lavania Spearman and 26-year-old Trinell Austin. They were all involved in the drug game, whether directly or indirectly by association with people or the ones who were involved in the drug game. And what I mean, guilty by association, maybe you live with somebody who sold drugs, maybe you knew somebody who sold drugs, and you were just around them. That's how common it was. On December the 5th, 1999, the whole situation would come to a bloody climax that would result in one of the biggest mass murders that Baltimore had seen in at least a decade and was like a scene from a freaking Al Pacino and Robert De Niro movie. It all started like this. Uh, Mary's son, who I'll call Andrew, he, uh, he sold drugs too, and he was kidnapped at gunpoint by Trayvon, Robert, Tariq, and Ismael. Tariq and Ismael, who were brothers, they, they led the kidnapping. At gunpoint, they kidnapped Andrew from a home in the O'Donnell Heights housing projects in southwest Baltimore after Andrew was lured there by the men, like, to rob him. When Andrew got to the house at uh, the 1200 block of Gus Ryan Street around 6 p.m., after he knocked on the front door, Ishmael opened the door and grabbed the man by his coat and yanked him in the house. Somebody else punched Andrew in the head and Ishmael and Robert pushed Andrew down a flight of stairs. Trayvon, Robert, Tariq, and Ishmael all had guns, and they all robbed Andrew and demanded more money and more drugs. And Andrew gave up all the cash that he had on him, which was about $300. The four men was like, you know, that ain't enough. And they took Andrew's leather jacket and a diamond watch a diamond bracelet, and a diamond ring that Andrew was wearing. The four men, they also took Andrew's wireless phone and pager. After taking all of that from Andrew, the four men were still like, that's not enough. And they knew that Andrew also sold drugs himself, and possibly they he had and could get more money. And they all wanted more money, so they decided to take Andrew to his house where he was sure to have more money stashed away, like somewhere. But Andrew was like, ain't no money there in my house. But he did know where to get like some more money. So Andrew called up another friend of his to see if he had more money and drugs. Andrew didn't tell his friend that he was being forced at gunpoint to even ask him this. But the friend did agree to meet him at a McDonald's on Greenmount Avenue. When Andrew's friends uh, showed up, when his friends showed up at the McDonald's, he too was ordered into a car. Well, basically he was ordered into um, Andrew's Maxima, which is, you know, that's, mm, that's a whole nother story about the Maxima. Anybody, <laughs> that's a drug dealer call. But anyway, 
Um, the four men, they decided to rob him too. When even that still didn't satisfy the four robbers, somebody suggested where they could get even more money and drugs. So with Robert behind the wheel of Andrew's Maxima, they all went to the home of uh, Andrew's sister who sold drugs. 39-year-old Mary Lowe McNeil Matthews lived in a row home in the 3500 block of Elmley Avenue in East Baltimore. Now, like I said earlier, according to articles in the Baltimore Sun, up to two pounds a day of heroin and cocaine were allegedly sold out of that house. And Mary, whether directly or indirectly, was involved in the drug game, which they all were aware of. It was no secret. So, you know, if you're around that, even if you don't sell it, you're kind of involved because you do realize, and I've been in a situation a million times, I'm not going to lie. The house could be raided at any time, and guess what? They're not going to be like, okay, so who sells drugs and who don't sell drugs in here? That's not how a raid go down. Everybody go down. So, anyway, when everybody got to the house, they ain't even parked the car. They double parked in front of the house. They hopped out. And with Andrew and his friends still, like, being held at gunpoint, they walked Andrew up to the front door. 18-year-old Makisha Jenkins, who was Mary's daughter and Andrew's niece, answered the door. Robert, who had been hiding behind Andrew with a gun held to his back, he stood up once Makisha opened the door. Then Robin, Robert put the gun to Andrew's head and told Makisha to back the fuck up. And when she did, everybody came rushing in the house and they all demanded that everybody lay on the floor. When they hesitated, they were punched and kicked. Then the four men led everybody to the basement of the home. 23-year-old Lavania Spearman, who was from the 1100 block of Comet Court in Baltimore County, had been lying on a bed in the basement sleeping, unaware, totally unaware of what was going on upstairs. Lavania had been dating Mary's son, who was 22-year-old Tavarius McNeil, and she was considered a cousin of the family by marriage. Lavania had no idea what was going on upstairs when all of a sudden, everybody was shuttled down to the basement. When they all came down, she got up off the bed when she was ordered to at gunpoint. Mary, the owner, wasn't home yet. So the four men kicked in Mary's locked bedroom door looking for more drugs and money. And when they didn't find anything, the four men started demanding just where the fuck was the money. So, or basically, where was Mary? So again, they used Andrew to call up his sister to try to lure her to the house so she too could be robbed. Uh, Andrew called, he called her up. He convinced his sister, Mary, to come over to the house and... Mary was like, okay, she's on her way back to the house. It was like routine work by now. When Mary got to the house, Robert held a gun to Andrew's head so that Andrew wouldn't warn her. And when Andrew opened the front door to let Mary in, Robert pulled Mary in the house by grabbing her shirt and holding the gun to her head. 
Mary's mother, 56-year-old Mary Helen Collian, she was from the first block of Solar Circle in Baltimore County, not even around here, and was also named Mary. But she was with her daughter, and she also, she ain't really see what was going on because she came in the house right after her daughter. Another cousin, 26-year-old Trinell Austin Somerville, who was from the 1100 block of Warler Way in O'Donnell Heights, and the mother of four kids, was also with Mary, and her, she was with Mary and her mother, and she too followed Mary in the home, and right, she basically followed, walked into a gun being placed at her head. Now the house held five women, Mary Matthews, the owner of the home, Mary's mother, Mary's daughter, and two female cousins of the family. The house also held Andrew and his friend who had been kidnapped also. Meanwhile, the four men ransacked the house, still looking for money and drugs. They took Mary's jewelry, but they still wasn't satisfied with that. When Mary didn't tell the men where she was hiding her stash, they threatened to kill her daughter, Makisha. So Andrew begged the men to please, They he, basically he begged, you know, the men to please take whatever they wanted and for Mary to give them whatever they wanted because this shit was not a freaking game. You know, look, the jig is up, just give them everything. So the men took Mary upstairs, like from the basement. And Mary gave them more money and cash that she had hidden in the house. Like, I would have done that from the jump. You know, to alleviate any suspicion from any of the neighbors. Because the house was still, I mean, the car was still double parked. Um, one of the men did move the Maxima that they had driven, like, to the home. They moved it to the back of the house because, like I said, it was still double parked out front of the house this whole time. Back in the house, Mary tried to appease the robbers. She giving them everything she had in the house. But it still ultimately was not enough in this game. And Ishmael escorted Andrew out of the house while everybody else stayed inside. The next thing you know, gunfire rang out. Mary, Mary's mother, Mary's daughter, her two cousins, and the man that was with Andrew were all shot. With the men using shotguns and handguns, some of the women were shot in the head execution style. Andrew's friend, who had been lying on the bed in the basement next to two of the victims, were also shot. He would later survive the shooting by acting like he was dead. Right after Andrew was still being held at gunpoint um, by Ishmael outside, when he heard like the gunshots coming from inside the house shortly after, Tariq, Trayvon, and Robert came running out the house. They all got in Andrew's car and went back to the McDonald's on Greenmount Avenue, still holding like Andrew hostage after they had just killed his mother, his sister, his niece, and his two cousins. And would y'all believe it if I told y'all that that still did not satisfy these killers? And they tried to use Andrew, like, again, to call up another one of his boys to try to rob him. But when that friend showed up at the McDonald's parking lot and saw that who Andrew was with, um, like, four dudes that he ain't know, he got spooked and he ran into the McDonald's. These niggas were so bold and trigger happy that, like, when the man started running back to the McDonald's, 
Ishmael got a gun from Robert and started chasing after the man. A police officer who was off duty at the time saw what was going down and when he saw Robert and Ishmael chasing a man holding a gun, he started chasing them and he shot at them like he shot at both of them. But he missed. <laughs> he missed both of them and when Robert and Ishmael saw that now they were being chased by a police officer, they stopped chasing the man and took off running in opposite directions down the street. Andrew ran into a store, told, told people there to call the cops because somebody was chasing him with a gun. Somebody called 911 and when the police showed up, um, Andrew told them everything that he had been through. And when the police went back to the rural home around 7.30 p.m., there they found the bodies of five women, all shot execution style, point blank range. Like I said, some with shotguns and some with handguns. Mary Collian was the only victim found dead in the kitchen and the other four women were found dead in the basement, lying on the bed. In a weird-ass twist. In, like, in true, be more, in true body more murderland style. On the same day that the five women were found shot to death in that house. Just three hours after their bodies were found. A couple of kids on their way to their elementary school found the body of Mary's son, 22-year-old, Tavarius McNeil, in the 4900 block of Goodnow Road. And like I said, this was Mary's son. Tavarius, he too, had been shot in the head. The shooter of the five women, all four, all four of them, were caught eventually. I mean... Ishmael was caught and arrested by Baltimore City Police when he literally showed up at a family member's house in the 4900 block of Eager Street. The police was at the house looking for him when Ishmael just showed up and just walked into their hands, basically. Um, the drug game is vicious, and the day after Ishmael was arrested, his brother Tavon was found on the same block where his brother um, Ishmael had gotten arrested, except Tavon was rushed to John Hopkins Hospital in serious condition because somebody had already cut his throat. <sighs> After the doctors at John Hopkins patched him up and saved his life, Trayvon was put in cuffs and arrested. On December 9th, four days after the murders, Tariq was arrested in a parking lot of a motel on Route 1 in Jessup, which was, people be thinking that's far, no, it's not far. Um, Robert was the hardest one to catch. On the run for 11 days, Robert needed help from the United States Marshals, and he was featured on America's Most Wanted. When Robert was finally caught, he was literally hiding under a couch in the living room in a row home on Dudley Avenue, only six blocks away from where the massacre occurred. Robert was caught with seven guns pointed at him from law enforcement because at the time, Robert was considered one of Maryland's most notorious fugitives. And when Robert was caught and saw all those guns pointed at him for a change, he was like, God damn, you guys act like I killed the president. <laughs> Typical people. With Ishmael, Tariq, Trayvon, and Robert all behind bars facing first-degree murder charges, you would think that that would be it. Case closed. I mean, like I said, this... It made news, but it didn't make news. 
you know, you would think that it would be an easy trial, easy convictions, but like, no, like I said, in the drug game, you got something that they call street justice, something that they call revenge. How you going to just kill my my family and revenge? And in January of 2000, 22-year-old Chris Manning, who was an associate of the four men who were charged in the mass murder, murder I mean, in the mass um, massacre, um, he was found murdered in what was an apparent revenge murder in retaliation because Mary's son, Andrew, was charged with murdering Chris. He was like, uh-uh. So... Yikes, y'all still with me? Y'all still up? Did y'all lose count like me? Like I lost count. Like I said, doing all this research, it was just too much bloodshed. I was just like, I probably got some of this wrong, to be honest with you. Especially the details about who did what, because it was just so much bloodshed. I told y'all, this one was a little bit rough for me. But either way, um, not surprisingly, uh, Trayvon, Tariq, Ishmael, and Robert were all convicted of first-degree murder. And all four men received five consecutive life sentences without the possibility for parole and another life sentence added on for conspiracy to commit murder and an additional 110 years for all of the other felonies that were related to this crime that was labeled as one of Maryland's most brutal, most savage mass murders that also generated national attention. Now... If you're from Baltimore, or if you're from Maryland, you remember back in the day when this happened. You remember the news was talking about uh, five women um, killed in a row home, in a Baltimore City row home. The the five the five women mass murder killing in a Baltimore City row home. Well, if, I'm not going to lie, with so much bloodshed that went on in this case, it was hard for me to follow. This is why this is one of Maryland's um, most notorious murders that I, that I selected for... Revenge, and it's it kind of borderlined on it could be a drug-related murder, but not. I kind of you know labeled it revenge also, especially because of the retaliation murder that followed after that. It was like it was no way how you gonna just know, you know the fearlessness of the killers that demonstrated most of b Moore's mentality to be honest people that's from Baltimore we know that's a lot, lot how these dudes be thinking they don't give a fuck do you hear me and it's like they're a senseless you again I, I started with this case by saying that that type of lifestyle especially if you get to be big you know you you making money this and that, it's gonna lead to two down two two forks in the road jail or prison or death it's obvious and like I said because of the national attention the brutality of this whole entire case definitely this is why I, I selected this one as um, one of Maryland's most notorious homicides with a revenge aspect moving right into this episode's unsolved homicide and like I said earlier, just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on uh, notorious homicide cases that may have received a lot of attention in the press from the media, 
Uh, this podcast also shines a light on the many, many homicide cases that we see in the state of Maryland that do not receive a lot of attention or in any mention in the press, if all, if anything. Um, these type of homicide cases are so common in Maryland that there's not a lot of time in this podcast to just simply focus on just one. Uh, sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear anything else about it other than the initial report and the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely unbelievable. It's staggering, really. It's obvious that, you know, homicide detectives are not magicians. They can't do it all by themselves. It's not like what you see on TV, like, you know, First 48 in every single case in the state of Maryland. It's just not like that. Homicide detectives, they're often overworked, underpaid, outnumbered, under-stressed, and flat-out beaten down, like, constantly. And what happens to cases that they can't keep up with, you know, where nobody is talking at all? What happens when there's absolutely no clues whatsoever? There's, like, nobody is really fighting for it, you know, to find out what happened. What happened to these type of cases where nobody is talking at all? You know, what happens where you see, you hear about it maybe once? And then all of a sudden you hear nothing else. Whatever happens where there's no, the cases where there's no clues, no information, nothing, just basically nothing, or cases that have been sitting around for years. What about cases where because of the victim's past or their current lifestyle, where it seems like the detectives, they're not really trying to investigate the case because you get a sense of feeling that the detectives, you know, they feel like they the victim quote-unquote had it coming because of their lifestyle or whatever. What happens to these type of cases where the, the people know who did it, but they can't prove it? It's a lot of that out here. You know, and because detectives, they can't make a case on flimsy evidence or evidence that only includes a witness coming forward. What happens to these type of homicide cases do the killer or killers just simply just get away with murder? It just seems like literally nothing is done with these type of forgotten homicides. Not because nobody cares anymore. It's because the public simply forgot all about it. Because we've been bombarded by new homicides. It's like in Maryland, in the state of Maryland, we've almost become immune to cases like this. Well, guess what? On this podcast... Although I do talk about a lot of cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety. On the flip side, a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the stabbing murder of 22-year-old Diane Lynn Miller. Do y'all remember hitchhiking? Y'all even, for young, the young people that listen to this podcast, Google hitchhiking. And I'm not talking about catching a hack. I'm talking about, in the hack in Baltimore is like when you put your hand out and you be like, okay, I want to ride. No, I'm talking about literally sticking out your thumb and walking on the side of the road to let motorists know that you need a free ride. Strangers know 
that you need a free ride. Most likely free. Yeah. People used to do that like literally all the time. Especially in the 60s and 70s. And 22 year old Diane Lynn Miller was known to be a regular hitchhiker. On November the 14th, 1978, Diane, like I said, 1978, Diane was last seen at Hilton and Caton Avenue in Baltimore City with two of her friends. Ten days later, on November 24th, 1978, at around 10.20 a.m., passerbys found Diane's fully clothed body on Route 3, between Route 648 and Dorsey Road in Glen Burnie. Diane had been brutally stabbed multiple, multiple times. Y'all, this unsolved homicide is 45 years old. <laughs> really? Come on now. It's time to put this one to rest and provide some type of closure for the family or friends. Damn, I mean, come on. So if you have any information at all that you want to provide in this 45-year-old unsolved homicide, for the person that did it is probably dead or dying or somebody knows something, please call the Anne Arundel County Police at 410-222-4731. Or you can call them at uh, 410-222-4700. Or you can call Metro Crime Stoppers at one 866 lockup which is 1-866-752-2587 on your numeric keypad. Once again, those numbers are, you can call the Anne Arundel County Police at 410-222-4731 or you can call them at 410-222-4700 or you can call Metro Crime Stoppers at one 1- Eight six six seven lockup, which is one eight six six seven five two two five eight seven, on your numeric keypad. You can remain anonymous, people. Like the person who did this is probably dead. You wouldn't even get in trouble. Like seriously, put some closure to this one. Thank you for tuning in this week. Before I go into my usual routine of how you can access um, prior episodes, let me mention that if you tuned into me at all last season, I did tell my listeners that I was producing a true crime documentary that was based off of my very first episode, and that episode that profiled accused child killers Adon Canella and Policarpio Espinoza. And yes, the documentary is now currently available. I did. It was supposed to be shown on Hulu. What, uh, what's the other one? Tubi and all of that. YouTube. But because of the extreme graphic nature of the documentary involving the brutal and horrific beheading, beating murders of three innocent kids, networks, they kind of shot away from that. They didn't want that for some reason. I mean, y'all got everything else that's true crime related on TV. Um, they told me that documentary was too graphic too much for network TV, too much for even internet TV. And eventually I am going to go independent with it. You know, eventually I am going to release it. But I I guess because the documentary does include like the actual crime scene photos, I don't sugarcoat anything on this podcast, my books or anything. And I refuse to pull that. I mean, I'm not going to water it down more than what I already did. I kind of blurred it out a little bit. I mean, why are they tripping? 
I'm like, this is true crime. And it's because of the, the brutal nature of the crime scene photos. I believe that they add to the emphasis of the innocence of the defendants, Adon Canella and Policarpio Espinoza, simply put. And in order for me to fully emphasize the fact that they did not commit this horrible homicide, I had to show what was done to these kids with no sugarcoating, no watering down. There's no way the victim's uncle and cousin committed the murders that were extremely brutal. And if you watch the documentary, you'll see who I believe were responsible or linked or whatever. And they'll either way, either way, the documentary is available via email only for now. Um, I, I do appreciate the people that have been requesting it. I hope you've been able to um, download it and view it and, you know, see what I'm seeing. I'm going to hope the downloads are going through. I haven't been hearing any complaints, so I'm assuming they are. Um, the, I do admit it's not for everybody's eyes and this documentary was not produced to make money or to, um, get likes or anything like that. Um, which is another reason why I didn't choose the whole network route. I can't and I will not be censored, especially when it comes to true crime and facts and like on an injustice that I believe is currently going on. So in order to see the documentary, um, please visit my website at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com and Maryland is spelled MDS. Um, you can subscribe to the mailing list by leaving your email address and sending me a request specifically that you want to see the documentary link and I will email the video to you within 24 hours. Um, the video will arrive in a WeTransfer link. And I believe you have up to, it used to be 48 hours, but I got it extended to seven days. So I think you got a week to download it and view it. After that, the link expire. So, but I do have to warn you though, the video is very graphic. As I said, Hulu and Tubi and YouTube all told me no because of its graphic content. And also because I believe they were like, look, we just don't give a sh we don't give, we don't care. And that's what I truly believe that with the state and the world of the way it is, nobody really cares that these two illegal immigrants are locked up, serving life sentences for crimes that they did not commit. Nobody cares. And that's why I produced a documentary to open up people's eyes. Jeez. And while you're at it, at my website, please be sure to subscribe to this, to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored, the the real version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and then out of nowhere, there's a podcast, but nope, that's not even hardly the truth. There is a real therapeutic message to this true crime world of gore and mayhem and madness. And if you click on the episode entitled, Why I Do What I Do, then you'll understand more about why I'm so weird, so crazy, so fascinated with true crime. And since you at my website, you might as well just check out the other prior episodes that you may have missed with all of the different seasons that we have focused on, like suicide-related homicides, uh, let's see, relationship-type murders, teen killers, 
um, sick, twisted pedophile. There's so many that you can just, ugh. I mean, if you're into that type of stuff, you have definitely on the right website. Um, you can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. You can also check me out on Season 1 of Payback, which airs for the TV1 network. You can also uh, see me on the Oxygen Network for um, Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. Or you can check me out on TV1's Justice By Any Means, um, which um, I believe that was Season 4, Episode 2, or Season 2, Episode 4, um, which kind of like profiles my story for a lot of people that don't really know me. Um, you can also see me on TV1's Fatal Attraction, where I profile the North Carolina child murderer Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profile uh, teen killers Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong, who were also profiled for, I believe, an episode when we had the Parasite Killings uh, episode. Or you can also check out my latest article for The Crime Report, where I, I am also discussing, again, what led me to developing a true crime podcast. Last but not least, many of my listeners have been messaging me on how they can donate to this podcast. You know, they want to do this, they want to do that. On my website, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com, there is a donate icon on the website where you can contribute via PayPal, Anchor, uh, Coffee. Or the buy me a coffee icons. Thank y'all so much for y'all support. Like when if you decide to do that, please, please, please be sure to tune in next week, where another gruesome, another high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland. It will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been. A Savage Life production.